This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past, and today we're going to start off the new year with um, another art historian. We have Julia Guernsey from the Department of Art and Art History here at UT Austin. Hi, Julia. Hi. Welcome to Not Even Past. Thanks very much. Julia's just um, published a book called Sculpture and Social Dynamics in Pre-Classic Mesoamerica, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, Let's start with the last two words of your title, Pre-Classic Mesoamerica. Where and when are we talking about? Okay, so pre-classic starts at about 1500 to 1200 BC and goes through about 250 AD. And my book focused on about, let's say, 600 or 900 BC to about 100 AD. Mm -hmm. And Mesoamerica? Mesoamerica is, the book focuses on Guatemala and Mexico. Um, Mm -hmm. But I touch a little bit on Honduras, El Salvador, but it's that part of the world. Okay, and um, you look at sculptures, you look at some big stone monumental sculptures, um, and uh, that's what we associate with this region before Europeans arrived. Um, what kind of sculptures do you study? Well, I've, I've studied the gamut. I, um, my first work focused on the beautifully carved um, monuments that we associate with rulership. And that are, are the first things that jump to people's minds when they think about this region in this time period. Mm-hmm. But this book that we're talking about today actually focused on monuments that are kind of big, blocky boulders, very different. And they were intriguing because of that. Mm-hmm. And they're, um, can you describe them? Sure. They're made from massive boulders, oftentimes several tons in weight, although we get also little itty-bitty ones. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a ver- you know, range of variation but the most famous ones are huge, several tons, and they, they're called pot bellies for obvious reasons. If one looks <laughs> at one, it's fairly clear why that, that name was given to it. Um, they always have a series of features, uh, closed eyelids. They're puffy, kind of bloated, jowly features, and oftentimes pursed lips. So there's, they're really they're intriguing looking. Mm-hmm. And they all have these same, they all, similar. Yes. Yeah. And there are over 130 of them known. So there's, there was mm-hmm. something going on that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. And where were they found? Where in communities were they found? Well, that's a good question. A lot of them lack primary context. So only a handful, I would say maybe six or seven um, to ten maybe, have primary archaeological context. Um, and they, they were typically found When you in, say that, you, we don't know if they were outdoors or in oh, shrines outdoors, or in houses or what? Outdoors. These were outdoors in plaza spaces, usually at the base of mounds or in the wide open plazas in front of mounds. So very much a part of kind of the public performative space mm-hmm. of these ceremonial centers. Mm-hmm. But a couple were found in households. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no easy answer. Uh-huh. Um, and so what f- do you think they were about? What was their function? Well, in the book, I argue that I think the primary theme was ancestors, that they were about um, establishing lineage histories. And these, the, the, the kind of puffy features are all about the fact that they are, they're dead. I think they're bloated, dead mm. people mm-hmm. at one level. Um, but I don't think that they're kind of anonymous, or that, I don't think that they're, it's not sad. They're, they're actually these revered ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I think they were elite, that they were crafted by elites and probably rulers of various sites. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that this is all about elite lineages or crafting community between elites mm -hmm. with these somewhat anonymous ancestors. So the kind of abstract idea of ancestor. Yes. And something that seems to have been shared over this relatively large right. space. And exactly. And I think that's, I think it's an imagined community that's going on. And what do you mean by that? What I mean is that I don't think that they were necessarily sharing these ancestor figures by, you know, any sort of blood or kin relationship, mm -hmm. but that they, they were, um, that rulers at this time are crafting these constructed identities or lineages of elites to set themselves apart hmm. from other people. And um, do, you, do you have any way of knowing how they were used or? Ooh, um, well, some of, a couple of them are associated with uh, tombs, which is, was part of the you know, reasoning behind mm -hmm. marking them as ancestors um, and deceased figures. And they appear to um, mark tombs in later periods as if they were remembering and memorializing the mm -hmm. individuals interred in that tomb. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, we don't have a lot um, of information about how they were venerated. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were set up just a couple with an altar in front of them, so potentially for some sort of ritual purpose. Mm -hmm. But there's, not, there's no real good evidence. And how do you know what you know? Um, we historians in the history department almost exclusively work with texts, right? Yes. So, um, how, how do you, do, do you base your analysis on the visual, um, properties of the big stones the, or on, um, text documents that provide context? It's, um, that's a great question. The, it's, my methods I think are, are diverse. These were conceived and carved and erected at a time when we do get some of the earliest writing in Mesoamerica, so with hieroglyphic inscriptions, but they they are not inscribed. Mm -hmm. So that became an interesting hmm. issue to play with too. That they th their surfaces were clearly not perceived as appropriate for text, mm -hmm. um, and we have to then understand them as that, or mm -hmm. not bemoan the lack of text. We mm -hmm. have to try to understand them in the way they were meant to be understood. Mm -hmm. um, were, were, were some of the objects that you studied in your first book, were they inscribed with? Yes, but we often can't read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's worn out. Well, because it's the early writing that we're talking about in, in this period, kind of late pre-classic 300 BC to 250 AD, um, is not well understood. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not well uh, deciphered yet. Mm -hmm. But we can pick out glyphs that we recognize. But the, my pot bellies, they, weren't, they didn't have these glyphs. Mm -hmm. So I, I relied very heavily on the archaeological record. Mm -hmm. um, I spent a lot of time uh, looking through through that material. And what's in that material? Well, I um, what I was looking at is the potbellies. They kind of emerge at about 300 BC, and they seem to be closely related to the advent of state formation. Mm -hmm. So, what I was doing in the archaeological record, or looking at um, on the excava excavation that I that I work with, that I do not direct, um, but I worked on there as the iconographer. Um, that I, uh, I was interested in what were the kind of social changes that brought about this, the advent of this new sculptural tradition. Mm -hmm. And so what I wanted to get at was what were those kinds of sculptural forms before it, and then how did those shift once we get centralized political structures, mm -hmm. increased economic centralization, and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So you see the potbellies emerge around 300 BC, and, at the, and, that, and we know that that's a time when states were be, beginning to form. Um, and do you see direct connections, or is this a? Do you extrapolate that they were connected? 
I, I, I'm sure you wish you yeah. had documents. <laughs> uh, I've convinced myself that I see direct. You know? I, I think, um, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's convincing if you look at all the, if you look at all the evidence for one thing, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that predates this, the pop bellies are we've got, uh, ceramic handheld figurines, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, abundant thousands of them from the middle pre-classic period, the ant, the period before the pop bellies with the same features. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's a complete cessation of that. And those are the hallmark of domestic ritual, private ritual. Um, and they were being utilized by everyone in the whole social spectrum from commoners to elites. Those abruptly decline, mm-hmm. and then we get the pop bellies that draw with this draw from the same suite of features, mm-hmm. but they're appropriated by rulers, mm-hmm. and they become the stuff of the public monumental centers, and they're strictly mm-hmm. controlled. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the evidence is there. You just have to kind of look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, at, at kind of these larger trends and the changes. Mm-hmm. Um. So you associate these with uh, some kind of state usage, right? And some kind of uh, um, effort to differentiate classes, right? Could right. you talk about that a little sure. bit? Sure. What's, what's interesting about them, the pot bellies, is that they're found at sites of kind of all socioeconomic rank. So we, can, we have a pretty good sense of the, um, we've got primary centers, secondary, tertiary, sometimes up to a five- a tier settlement system in these regions. I'm not and, sure I understand what that means. Well, there, that there would be a central site that had the kind of the, they were the paramount authority in the region. And then they had some s- subsidiary sites mm. that mm-hmm. kind of went down the ranks. Mm-hmm. And the pot bellies show up at sites from the first tier, second tier, third tier, all the way on down. Mm-hmm. So that, that also became interesting that they clearly weren't the stuff of only a, the primary ruler, the paramount authority in the region. Whereas the stela with the hieroglyphs and these very narrative, more elegant, mythologically charged themes, those are typically found at only the primary sites. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in trying to understand what, what the potbellies did differently mm-hmm. and what they can tell us about these relationships between elites of varying rank. Mm-hmm. So the potbellies are doing something that other sculpture is not necessarily doing. And um, and you associate it with ancestor veneration, right? And what else? I think it's ancestor veneration, but it's also this performance of ancestry that a lot of them um, have these pursed lips that are very distinctive. Hmm. And um, when I went back and looked at the ceramic figurines that predate them by you know hundreds of years and that are no longer being made when the potbellies start to be made, many of the figurines that have that same pursed lips. They're um, pursed because they're actually whistles. So there was an acoustic aspect to mm-hmm. this. That the, I think the, um, the pursed lips and the pot bellies are sort of a relic of this. The acoustic mm-hmm. properties of these whistles or ocarinas that had these puffy-faced features. Mm-hmm. And that that was, um, there's great um, evidence from later periods, um, kind of ethno-historically, and even in the modern ethnographic present, modern groups in Maya and other areas in Mesoamerica of um, ancestors and calling that the ancestors with sound or mm-hmm. articulating is kind of this sign of your vital life essence. Mm-hmm. This, this, the, the, your living breath is uh, can be performed mm-hmm. through, the, through the act of whistling. So I think, in other words, these, they're, they're portraying these ancestors as vital 
mm-hmm. beings. And, and speaking to them. Speaking and to them, yeah. to them, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And there's other, I mean, there are other sculptures where we have these animated expressions as if their lips are parted. Mm-hmm. We also know that um, the act of speech and articulating was associated with the ruler, that the ruler, mm-hmm. that even the, the term for that in, in some groups in Mesoamerica, it's related to this utterance and the ability to make speech mm-hmm. is what made one's, one a ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as, as someone interested in visual history, um, it's really interesting to me to see the way you draw on the purely visual aspects of these um, sculptures and um, connect them with the purely visual aspects of other things and then contextualize them. It's really interesting. Um, do you, but it's very different than what most historians do in the history department. Right. Um, <laughs> so we really like texts. Um, so... Um, do you think of yourself as a historian? You know, I had this talk with some undergraduates last week, and I thought we, we would be ahead in, in our field to call ourselves historians of art rather than art historians, uh-huh. because I do think we're, we're, we are using the methods of history. That's kind of our primary mm-hmm. vehicle. Um, but in places where we don't have text, we're using the objects as text. And so methodologically, I was really looking for sources that did that, trying to find people who've, who've talked about the way objects change the way we move through. I mean, we can understand them as, as guiding us, and it, you know, comparable to the way a text mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. as well. So I do, I, I think of myself as somewhere betwixt and between um, art history, history, and archaeology. Uh, I'm probably a very ar- archaeological art historian, but... I don't know a single archaeologist who would ever call me an archaeologist. <laughs> to them, I'm an art historian. Uh-huh. So yeah. it's, it's a methodologically diverse um, mm-hmm. profession, I think. That's really interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.